this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Literary Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Britt Edelin, and I have a really special guest with me today. Um, I feel like I say that a lot, um, but all of my guests are special, but this one's really special. Um, We have David Wills. Um, He's a professor of French studies at Brown. which is my alma mater, which is one of the reasons this is a really special interview for me. Um, he's the author of um, many books. So um, we have In Animation, Theories of Inorganic Life, published by the University of Minnesota Press. Also Dorsality, Thinking Back Through Technology and Politics. Also, again, through the University of Minnesota Press, um, as well as the book that we're going to be talking about today, Prosthesis, which was originally published by... Um, Stanford University Press, but was just released, um, I believe, for the 25th anniversary edition, um, out through the University of Minnesota Press, part of the Post-Humanities series. Um, So welcome. Oh, and before we get into the real introduction, uh, or the welcome, I want to say what's so special about this for me is um, I came to you um, through your translations. Um, So you've translated several of Jacques Derrida's um, works into English. So I read the animal that therefore I am um, first, but you've also translated some others, The Gift of Death, as well as Theory and Practice, um, and Counterpath, the book he has with Catherine Malibu. Um, so welcome, David. Welcome to the show. Very happy to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so as I mentioned, I am I came to your work um, originally, so I read The Animal That Therefore I Am, which is probably the most important text um, from my own studies. It was really what got me into what I'm studying today. And I read your name as translator and I was like, I want to know more about him. Found out you were a professor of French at Brown um, and then was never able to study with you. (laughs) My schedule never overlapped with yours. So this is really exciting. Um, But I do remember I read a lot of prosthesis over a little bit of time at Brown. And then I looked at Um, dorsality. And this was prior to like, you know, becoming a real engaged scholar person. So I don't think it made a lot of sense. But reading this again, um, for this interview, I, it did, it made a lot more sense. Um, So I think, I think we can go ahead and get started with the questioning. Um, And my first question is, um, it's related to the title and the word prosthesis. Um, So can you give us an idea of what prosthesis means and how you're deploying it in the text. Um, you know, I think we think of it obviously in like a prosthetic, like a prosthetic limb, but there are, you're using it in many different ways. So what are the myriad ways that you're using it and how does that relate to how we normally think about the word prosthesis? Right. Um, well, it uh, is a word with, as, as you say, with lots of different uh, resonances and uh, semantic uh, directions that it flows in. But the uh, most important idea to begin with for me was the relation to the question of prosthetics um, and to the idea of artificiality. Uh, given that in the in the basic sense, uh, a prosthetic is like an artificial limb. And so um, that led me to wonder, and, and we can talk more about uh, 
about uh, what perhaps was prompting that uh, that wondering. But that led me to wonder uh, and to think about more generally how the human body in particular um, relates to being the human body being flesh, uh, blood and flesh and, and bone and so on, how that relates to um, artificial inanimate objects. So I, I started to extend the idea that uh, a prosthesis was something that one attached to the body in order to uh, make up for something missing. For example, when a leg is amputated and one wants to add a prosthetic leg enable, in order to enable a more normal lifestyle, let's say, um, I started to think more about how uh, that could be generalized, how that idea of an attachment was perhaps not uh, all there was to it. And to begin with, the fact that these sorts of attachments are in fact uh, ubiquitous when it comes to humans. Uh, we put on clothes, we, I put on spectacles, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, so our body is being added to with these artificial devices, let's call them, um, in myriad ways that are every day, if you like, and not just restricted to those who have had an accident uh, or might be uh, uh, born with a disability and so on. So um, there was that. And I, and, and I was also interested in, because I'm interested in words, uh, interested in the word itself, and began to look at it, and it comes from the Greek, is uh, the, the uh, prefix pro, and then the word thesis, um, which in fact means to, to put forward. Thesis uh, comes from the, the Greek meaning to place. Uh, and as we know, a thesis is, as in a hypothesis, something that one puts out there uh, in order to test an idea, as it were. Um, so I, I, I went down that uh, road as well along, uh, along those lines. But I guess um, we can make this a, a separate question, or I can lead on to it now. There was a particular prosthesis, a particular prosthetic, um, that was uppermost in my mind when I began thinking about this book and be began writing this book. Yeah, I think we get that's a good a good uh, segue. Um, so you open with this prosthetic in mind. Can you say more about which one it is and um, how that kind of? I mean, you talk in the new preface um, how that how prosthesis is memory, and I think can you get into that um, little that bit um, as you open onto this originary prosthesis? Right. Well, the uh, the prosthesis that I had. Uh uppermost in my mind was uh, my father's. My father was uh, an amputee. He uh, uh, lost uh, his leg from the thigh down uh, because of a carcinoma um, back in uh, when he was 18. Uh, that would have been for him in 1939. So it was interesting already the fact that that coincided with the outbreak of the Second World War. Um, and fact that most people of his generation uh, who, who wore prostheses, prosthetics, were in fact uh, people who had been injured in the war. Um, but he was not. Uh, his was uh, a disease. But in any case, uh, I thought about how the way our, our, um, my life growing up and our family life uh, had to work around, if you like, uh, the fact of my father's disability and the fact of the role that this leg, this artificial leg itself played in, as it were, becoming a family member uh, in, in, in many ways. Um, so, so that was, uh, that was um, what gave rise to the title, I think, what gave rise to, to thinking about the, uh, uh, how to work through the theoretical implications of uh, of this story, but it also gave rise to the idea of wanting my wanting to make a book that was somehow 
an instantiation of the question it was discussing. So uh, hence, your, as your uh, reference to memory suggests, I wanted to incorporate memories uh, of, my, of my father and of my, of my growing up and of my family life um, into the discussion, into what was ostensibly, if you like, an academic discussion of the question of prosthesis. Um, and in that way, I wanted to make the book a combination of uh, natural and artificial and there, there, of course, it becomes more, much more complicated because, <coughs> excuse me, it's hard to say which is more natural for me uh, at that point, writing an academic book about a topic uh, that gets instantiated in, uh, in uh, literature, in, in works of art, and so on. Uh, was, that the, uh, was that the natural side of it? Or was it more natural for me to uh, recount my childhood? Um, but certainly the combination, the idea of putting the two together uh, was something that interested me. And it interested me because I, I felt one couldn't do that in any simple way. There was no easy way that I could fold one type of writing into another. Uh, but that was what I set out to do. Yeah, the, the genre, or I guess the, the mixing of genres, um, was something that was really interesting to me as I was reading, um, especially, um, so you, the book is just called Prosthesis, um, which I, I think I appreciate more now, especially, so it's not following this, you know, traditional academic um, title, I guess, um, like a law, I guess, almost of, you know, pithy statement, colon, three, three thoughts separated by commas. Um, and so you just have this word prosthesis. And so in my mind, there's a, it's not necessarily um, this academic text, this criticism. So, but it, but it also is. So I, I'm, I'm glad you talked about that. Um, and I'm wondering, was that a, was that a, how is writing about yourself in kind of this academic way? Did it, was that a hard process? Do you, do you look back on it now and, and think differently of it than when you wrote it in the original, um, originally yeah I mean I don't think the the, the writing of it uh, there's there parts of the book that were let's call them autobiographical although I do also play with the idea that uh, you know I could have invented this whole story um, uh, so it's it's sort of an autobiographical fiction um, we could go through point by point and see where I may have exaggerated or, or, or uh, embellished the truth um, and so on. Um, but I don't mind saying now that, yes, my father did have a, an artificial leg. It was part of the historical record. It can be verified and so on. Um, but the, the, the reminiscences, writing the reminiscences, reminiscences um, was not something that was difficult per se. Uh, I mean, I, I was interested in a type of fluid stream of consciousness writing, if you like, for want of a better term. Um, that these rem these reminiscences, as I, as I say, these memories uh, seem to evoke, and and that seemed to be the uh, the, the natural way of of writing them for me. Um, I, I I was interested in trying to to write like that, and I thought if I were writing, uh, you know, creative writing, creative fiction. Uh, that that would be a style that I would try and uh, employ. But that said, I wasn't sure, or, or, or I was, I, I had my suspicions that one could not sustain that uh, throughout a novel. Let's say, um, you know, one can't do Joyce over again. Uh, one 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 can't do those those experiments, those modernist type experiments that. Uh, that have already been uh, been done, um, but I thought in a limited way this could be useful, and it would be a way of uh, producing a contrast between the drier, more academic style sections of the book uh, and these more fluid, um, uh, lyrical, if you want, uh, passages, um, which also, once again, for me. 
uh, raised a, a paradox that that the passages that talked about this piece of steel that was attached to my father's body, um, they were the more lyrical passages, and 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 the the ones that. Uh, talked about that from an academic point of view, uh, they were the more, uh, let's say, uh, rigid um, passages in, in terms of their genre uh, and so on. Um, but I think I missed part of your question there. What, was there a focus to it? That... No, I don't. I think you got it. Yeah, so, so I, I mean, I put them together, but, but yeah, no, that, that was the point I wanted to add. To come back to the idea that Given this, once I had this idea, right, I'll write these lyrical passages, these, these reminiscences, and I'll write these uh, uh, chapters that are essentially studies of different uh, authors, different novels, paintings, uh, Freudian theory, and so on. Uh, but I was left with the, the, the very difficult task of how to put one together with the other. How how to 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 switch from one to the other. Uh, so for me, this the, the switching, the shift across that opposition, uh, which is the question of prosthesis for me also, how flesh comes uh, face to face uh, with steel. Uh, that that was the most important consideration in the final analysis, and that. That is what prosthesis for me is about. Less the artificial limb itself, less the prosthetic uh, uh, element itself, than uh, what I call the articulation with its other, with the other side of things, with its opposite. Um, how can two things that are opposite, uh, first of all, how do they meet, right? And what, what's, the, uh, what's the form of their meeting and what's the form of their... <coughs> cooperation, their articulation, their uh, in uh, ev all the relations that they they establish, right? So I thought just putting. Uh, so this is getting back to one point that uh, that you mentioned. Uh, getting putting just the word prosthesis in the title uh, without a subtitle. And I remember the editor at Stanford asked if I would if there would be a subtitle. If there could be a subtitle, I think. I think she was suggesting there there had to be there should be, um, but I said no. I didn't I didn't want there to be, and uh, there was there was no argument about it. So uh, yeah, it uh, it leaves it leaves the the question there. What what is this? You you, you see the title prosthesis, and there are cases where the book uh, got shelved in the uh, the medical uh, section <laughs> of, of uh, book bookstores, um, not libraries, I don't think, but. Uh, but at least I know of one case where, where the book was to be found in the medical shelves, yeah. That's, that's funny. Um, so you, you mentioned um, the, the question of articulation, and you, you write on page nine, for the writing of prosthesis um, is inevitably caught in a complex play of displacements, prosthesis being about nothing if not placement, displacement, replacement, standing, dislodging, substituting, setting, amputating, supplementing. Um, it begins in a juncture that is already a displacement. Um, and I, and I want to come back to this later, but I, I think before we do that, I, I want to stay with the body for a moment, um, both the body of your father and, and, and the body in general. So on, on page 137 in the, the chapter, Paris 1976, which is um, written in French and in English on face on the facing sides, I, the word is slipping, um, but you write, the prosthetic body will not be an exception, but the paradigm for the body itself. Um, if you will, it is by means of prosthesis that I wish to insist on the non-originary status of the body, on the non-integrality of its origin, in order to resist the idea that the originary dissemination of sense might be weakened by the presumption of a corporeal entity. Um, so can you speak more about how you're thinking about bodies in general, as always already being attached to something prosthetic. Um, and I think this is something you bring up in your other works, Dorsality and Inanimacies. Um, so can you say more about this idea that underpins a lot of the text? Yeah. 
sure, because it's true that this idea has become central to my thinking and what I was feeling out, I guess, when I first started writing prosthesis has developed into, I don't know, something more like a, a, a theoretical, uh, conceptual uh, framework that gets explored in, in other work. But if, I think if we stop and think, the, the body somehow, the human body, our own bodies, function for us in, a, in an everyday way uh, as uh, the, the paradigm example of something that is uh, a self-enclosed entity, right? Um, and, 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 and all uh, conceptions of identity, in fact, uh, relate to and, and are underscored by that, uh, that presumption that we have. We think, we think if there's something that is, you know, fully formed, uh, uh, different for each, for each of us, and, and that we carry around um, uh, as, as the example of, of, of the entity, if you like, uh, much, much more so, much more vividly than, than objects in the world, um, then, it's, then it's our body, our human body. We think, we think there it is. Um, now, of course, those bodies come in different uh, forms, uh, uh, sexuated forms, for example. Um, uh, they're, they're, and every single one is different. And, and they can also be born in, in, in ways that are, uh, that, that used to be called, you know, deformities, um, that uh, they can be born without limbs, for example, uh, and so on. So, so that, uh, that conception that we have of, of, an, of a fully formed self-enclosed entity uh, was never really there. Uh, if we stop stop and think about it, I mean the conception was always there, but the, but the reality was 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 never really there. That uh, you know every every single human body has some form of defect in quotation marks, right? It has some form. Uh, it's not it's not that perfect entity that we that we think about it as. So um, the idea of uh, a prosthesis as something that comes along to be added to a body that is lacking in something, lacking in a member, for example, uh, seemed to me to be uh, highly suspect or certainly in insufficient, in fact, to really explain uh, uh, how, how the human body is composed and how, in fact, it is, as I suggest, uh, always from the beginning, if we could find the beginning for it, um, involved in, uh, in, in organizing itself around its own uh, lack of integrity, right? Um, so there's the form of the body itself, uh, let's say in, in the womb, uh, when, it, when it gets to be formed the way it's going to come into the world uh, and we could, I said we could argue about where, where it begins to be fully formed in the sense that we conceive of it as uh, but certainly once it comes into the world um, then, then that it, it, it's, it's, it's entering into relations in a way uh, with that world around it um, that are for me prosthetic. It, 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 it comes into the world immediately. Uh, a, a body is born. It is. It be, it's beginning to uh, deal with prostheses. Uh, you know that are simply the world that's ex external to it. Um, and so it's it's engaged from. The moment of its of birth, and as I say, maybe we can go back and figure out uh, whether that's not already happening before that. Uh, it's in, engaged in articulating, if I can use that word once again, articulating with uh, uh, an inanimate universe, an inanimate world around it. 
um, and it's going to do that for the rest of negotiate with that uh, for the rest of its life. Um, you know, however fully formed, however perfect it might uh, be uh, or not, uh, that it, it's in that relation of prosthesis uh, from the beginning. Yeah, so and there's... So, sorry, uh, just one more point then. Um, another way that one can extend that, that questioning then about the integrity of the body is, is inside the body itself, if you like. Um, and and the, the, the idea of articulation, that's why that became so uh, key for me, uh, the idea of articulation is already uh, at work in the body, in, in, in the skeletal body, in the, in the body that, uh, that bends, uh, that, that uh, <laughs> moves, and so on. So it's articulating with itself, within itself, um, before it articulates with something supposedly outside of itself, uh, like an artificial limb. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in this, this question of relation. Um, so you write um, early on in the text that any relation is a relation to difference or otherness, and prosthesis is a name for that. Um, and I think this is something that's you're bringing out, and I, I think some... What's interesting that I see in this is that, you know, there's a critique of maybe this neoliberal or late capitalist atomized individual. There's, I mean, from all different arenas of the academy, our people are saying, you know, there's, you aren't alone. There are, you're always in relation to other people. And I think what you're doing is the idea of prosthesis as relation really is, is very profound is that it's always prosthetic there's always something unnatural or artificial about the other but you can't you can't get rid of it and i think there's there's something maybe a little scary in that um it's kind of terrifying to think that you know you have to rely on these different or um others or things in the world that are not you um so i'm wondering both in its original instantiation um 25 years ago how are you thinking about maybe in ethics of prosthetics and especially now i think the question is really big in relation to your other texts on um, inanimacy and how this maybe can bring up an ecological or a non-human thinking this is in the post-human series how are you thinking about relations prosthetics with the non-human or the ecological or the earthly or terrestrial right that's a very good question you're right that um you know 25 years ago i i didn't have all that in view I didn't have much of that in view. I mean, I had the idea uh, that you quoted <coughs> that a uh, that if you like the the, the paradigm for uh, relations, if we presume the prosthesis hypothesis, the paradigm for relations is one of uh, radical difference. Whatever one is related to is an otherness. That is a radical otherness. Uh, so if we if we uh, are using the model of natural versus artificial, flesh versus steel, uh, right? That relation, uh, you know, is like is like a, uh, a binary opposite. Um, so uh, I, prosthesis allowed me to extend that relation to relations in general because uh, how how can one determine in the final analysis uh, the whole scale of relations going from total opposite to extremely proximate. Um, how, would, how would one come up with a, uh, a means of, uh, of separating along the scale all the different categories of otherness? Uh, one couldn't, um, right? Uh, we know that we can feel that uh, 
a partner we live with is we're in a, a close relationship to, uh, or or our, our cat in the background, um, are the are the living beings and so on. Um, but in fact, uh, you know, even those relationships are, are othernesses that are uh, radical othernesses, and that becomes clear at certain points when when the relation is more difficult, right? So. Um, I don't want to restrict the uh, discussion to uh, relations among among living beings because you're absolutely right that the prosthesis begins with this idea of relating to the inanimate, uh, of, of the animate relating to the inanimate. So um, otherness uh, and, and, and relations of difference is, is, is the big topic, I guess, today in a way that uh, has been diversified uh, um, far more than was the case uh, 25 years ago when I was writing this book, or 30 years ago was really when I was starting to write this book. Um, uh, even though the, the, the basic premise, I think, had been laid down then, uh, that, that otherness w- was an unfathomable uh, question. It was, was not something that uh, um, we could easily uh, easily uh, Explain and 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 organize our uh, understanding of and so on, and we're still wrestling with that. And now, as you say, um, we've come to the question of the human coming up against its otherness in a very different set of ways, right? Uh, how it relates to the earth, how the earth, how the earth relates to it how the earth will relate to it when it's no longer around um, and so on and so forth. These, these ideas uh, definitely um, make our presumptions about otherness and about the relation to otherness uh, far more complex and far more pro- problematic. Um, if we are now required to uh, conceive of uh, otherness as uh, as not being less, our relation extended outside of ourself than uh, uh, a relation of something that we cannot touch, um, turning itself around to require uh, a relation on our part. I mean, I'm not explaining myself very well, but if you see the, the, the directionality of things uh, seem to be very different uh, once one comes to uh, questions of the Anthropocene and 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 the fact of uh, humanity and what it's producing in terms of uh, ecological change uh, on the one hand, but on the other hand, a, uh, a, a, a an Earth that that in itself in a sense doesn't care at all about humanity. <laughs> Um, and we'll live on without that humanity, but we'll bear the mark of its relation with it uh, when that humanity was around. These, these sorts of questions are certainly uh, reconfiguring uh, what, what prosthesis may have uh, begun to uh, think about uh, in, in, in far more uh, complex ways, yeah. Um, I want to, I really like what you're saying about otherness and I, I want to, I think one of the things that is easy to come, the conclusion that's easier to come to is because it's so obvious and like, like if you see someone with an artificial limb, you can say like, that's something from outside of the body attached to the body. Um, but one of the conclusions you come to, um, is that, I mean, this is very, you know, it's a Freudian, it's a psychoanalytic concept that we are other to ourselves. Um, and that this original, or maybe not original, but this very primordial or foundational otherness is situated within language. And you write that language inaugurates a structure of the prosthetic when the first word projects itself from the body into materiality, or vice versa. Um, by being always already translation, constituting itself as otherness, articulation of the otherness that constitute it, um, language is a prosthesis. And I'm wondering, can you say a little bit more about what it means to have language as a prosthesis, um, as well as 
this this line that's always already translation. What are what does that mean when you're saying language is always already translated when it comes, even when it comes from us? I think that's a really exciting piece that you or exciting little bit that you put in there. Right. Well, this there's two things. Um, there is the idea that the the, the, the word translation could uh, or, or or is in uh, in the book a synonym for uh, articulation that uh, we were talking about up to this point. Um, what translation suggests is the idea of a, a type of dynamic movement across that gap I was talking about between flesh and steel, between two two elements. Uh, supposedly uh, opposed to each other that nevertheless enter into a relationship with each other um, that that somehow translation can be a, a figure for that um, because translation is the transposition uh, I, mean, I mean it means carrying over um, from the Latin verb um, it means carrying over from one place to another so you're translating across the divide between uh, uh, one language and another, right? And that is, that is a divide of, uh, of, of, of opposition, right? There are, there are some people who, who understand one language, other people who understand another, and this is bridging that gap, if you like. So, uh, so translation could be, could be understood as, the, as a or the figure for, uh, for prosthesis, if you like. Uh, as much as uh, could articulation, because it gives gives more of the sense of that movement. Um, but I think our, our first translation is into our mother tongue, as it were. Right from the moment that we start to speak, uh, let's call it the mother tongue, uh, the single language that that many, but not all people speak. Of course, uh, many people have uh, a number of mother tongues, as it were. Uh, and they grow up in a plurilingual uh, situation, um, but many of us uh, do not. And um, and I, I I certainly grew up uh, as a monolinguistic uh, anglophone. Um, but 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 coming to use uh, language is, it seems to me, already entering uh, a familiar world that is also a foreign world, right? So, uh, so speaking is natural, right? We learn it naturally. Uh, we learn it as a natural process. Um, but of course, language uh, is nothing natural at all. We don't invent it. Uh, we pick it up from outside. Somebody else has given it to us, right? Our mothers are giving it to us because uh, uh, they have been uh, you know, inducted into the use of it. Um, uh, uh, the people around us are the ones that uh, that that teach us, um, as it were, in a natural uh, situation, in a natural process. But but which is in fact uh, a, a translation. It's in fact our taking on something outside of us. It's not ours. It doesn't belong to us. Uh, we can't take it away and, and say it's it's mine and I use it. Um, uh, uh, because I, I invented it. Um, so it seems to me it's very much a prosthetic process. It's very much like our taking on language as we learn to speak is very much like having something artificial attached to us from the outside, even though, uh, to repeat that um, idea, it, it comes across as the most natural thing in the world. Yeah, I, I was thinking of um, Derrida's from monolingualism. The other, um, the I mean, the one, the quote that we all know. I um, I have one language, and it is not my own. Um, when I was reading this, as well as maybe I think something that's interesting the the fact that we use the term articulate to say speaking, like I'm articulating, um, and there's that that's an interesting little. Um, I don't know, an interesting little coincidence of the English language, but perhaps not a coincidence at all. Um, and I think this gets me to a question that I, I'm, I really want to ask is that you write just before the quote that I brought up, you 
you write that language always occurs within the structure of the lapsus. Um, and there's at the beginning of the book or in the preface you talk about, there's this lapse between maybe the title and the very first instantiation or instance of the word um, prosthesis, which is like, it's almost two pages. Um, and I think, so the first word of the book is shifting. Um, and you get this, this long, I mean, is it one, is it one sentence? It's one sentence, yeah. Okay, yeah, it's very long. It's almost two pages. It's a monster. Um, Artificial monster at the beginning. Yeah, um, that just keeps, you keep adding, you know, these, I mean, they're, they're prosthetics in the sense that you're just continue to attach clauses. Um, and I think something that you're getting at is there's this lapse um, there's this space, there's this time between title and the word, as well as something that's, I'm noticing the shifting. It's, uh, you're right, you talk about uncomfort, um, discomfort almost, um, of having to move your weight around. And I think something that I want to ask you about is how do you see the relationship between prosthesis and discomfort or uncomfort um, and how that might articulate a way of being in the world? of like this fundamental discomfort of like having to notice that there are things other than you in the world. Right. Yeah, no, that's a very good question and a complex one. Um, let me pick up on it from something you said at the beginning of it, it uh, uh, talking about articulation and, related, and the fact that we use that word uh, for language. Um, linguists talk about uh, languages having double articulation. Uh, articulation of course is the production of the sound right individual sounds uh, and then the, the, the that's the, 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 the first and then the second articulation is the fact of the joining these sounds together to make uh, semantic units uh, so the the individual sounds that we produce in and of themselves the, the phonemes the linguists call them uh, have no have no meaning in and of themselves right they just sound um, in order to produce meaning we have to then put them in a syntagmatic sequence. We have to attach them one to the other in order to produce syllables, words, sentences, and so on. Um, so uh, I think one can see there a shift, if you like, from, from naturality to artificiality. It's, it's natural for us to produce the sounds. Um, putting them together then in a sequence in order to make sense uh, we don't govern that anymore. We do that according to the law of language. It comes to us from the outside, the rules of grammar, the rules of syntax, and, and, and so on and so forth. So um, there you get the shift. I produce a sound. I, 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 my, my, my body produces a sound, right, naturally, but then it falls into the, into the world, as it were, and has to be picked up and put together in pieces those pieces have pieces of sound have to be put together to to produce uh, the, the sense. So um, there, there is, uh, if you like, th th there are gaps and there are there are there are lapses. Um, th there are there are lapses, gaps, and and lapses fall. Um, that's what the word means. Uh, a lapses is a fall essentially. Um, that mean that we're always uh, we're always in a form of discomfort uh, dealing with that at the most basic level of speaking, right? Uh, we 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 think we're speaking naturally, but we're 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 stumbling along, as it were, right? We're, we're limping along uh, as we produce language. Um, that's why we're humming and hiring as as I'm doing now as. Uh, yes, I put my thoughts together. Um, it's not just the, the problem of the thinking. Um, of course, we could go into that, but um, I'd rather not. Uh, <laughs> but there is there is the problem of the actual uh, uttering, right? In the simple sense, uh, it is it is discomforting, uh, and and I like to think of the reason for that is because. Uh, we open our mouths and, and, and think we're all ready to, 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 to speak. It's coming out of us naturally, but we're suddenly then 
uh, we fall and we have to pick ourselves up and 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 attend to the rules of how the language works uh, that mean that it's uh, it's something of a discomforting uh, uh, operation uh, uh, experience so that can be a figure i think for uh, how the prosthetic relation to the world uh, works um, and 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 seems to reinforce the idea that uh, the, the body that we thought we were comfortable with, if, if we are, and of course uh, we're often not, um, even within the body itself, uh, but at the point at which through language it comes into relation with the world, uh, the discomfort comes in. And the discomfort comes in with a vengeance when we make a gaffe, right? When we, when we make a real lapsus, if you like, um, when we want to ask our mother to pass the butter and we say, you've destroyed my life. Um, uh, those, those are the cases where, where the discomfort suddenly shows or where we, where we say things um, even in our own language or in a foreign language, language that we might be learning um, that are uh, not what we want to say. So, so yeah, the, the speaking is a figure, I think, for, for the discomfort of our relations in the world because they are prosthetic relations, because we are, we are being prosthetized uh, as we speak. I think that's, that's a really interesting reading. And I think something that it makes me think of is I, I was reading, you know, several of your interviews and whatnot. Um, and... I have no idea where you said this, and I really hope I'm not just making it up out of thin air, but you were talking about how you um, were attracted to um, Derrida's work in part because of the writing style. And I think what writing, what he opens up and how deconstruction, um, what it enables you to do with language. And I, I think that's something that comes across, um, especially in that, that first page and how there's a stumbling and, and I think even the act of reading, we fall into this lapsus or we fall into some kind of uncomfortable prosthetic relation to the text. Um, and I, I was very taken by that. Um, the performance of prosthetics or prostheticization that comes out within the text. Um, so we have another question and I think this is maybe a little more contemporarily minded. Um, and I'd like to ask about the difference between this and the original publication. Um, but you write about the, um, I guess I'll quote, um, prosthesis is a theory of the human animal and its relations to technology. Um, and then how you, you write about um, the transactions we have with the non-organic environment from which the human can never and has never been able to be extracted. And you know, 25 years ago, the landscape of technology was so different. And how are you, when you, when you think about it now, how is this different or what's something that, what are you picking up on that? How has, I don't know, I guess it's been more prostheticized in, in today's world, especially, I don't know, this perhaps romantic belief that we can ever get away from technology. Um, I think that what you're trying to say is like, we've never actually been away from technology. Um, so how are you thinking about the difference between the original publication and now? And maybe can you say a little bit more about what it means to not disavow technology? How do we embrace it prosthetically? Right. And even perhaps develop an ethical relation to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another good question. I mean, I, I was struck by the fact that, um, my father's artificial leg, which he therefore got, as I said, in the, around 1940, um, that that uh, the, the, the basic principles of prosthetics that were available then were things that had not really changed for four centuries. And there's a chapter where I go back to 1553, which happens to be the first uh, time that the word prosthesis gets used in the English language, but is also contemporaneous with the time when the uh, uh, Ambrasse Paré, the uh, uh, 
surgeon of the king in France uh, was introducing the principles of amputation, um, suture of the arteries, uh, 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 rather than cauterization of the wound, which was what they were doing before that on the battlefield with when, when a soldier lost a, a limb um, or when they had to amputate, they simply cauterized the wound, which of course meant that it never really healed and, and was scarred and was terribly painful. And, and Paré was the, the one that figured out that uh, you had to stop the bleeding and you could do that by, by suturing, by tying up the artery, lig ligaturing the arteries, in fact. Um, so it seemed to me that was the point. And, and he also uh, developed a whole um, uh, idea of, of artificial limbs and, and drew them and, and gave them to us in his, in his book from back in the 16th century. So between that point, uh, when artificial limbs were able to be worn because we didn't have a gaping wound where, say, a, a leg was uh, amputated. Um, up to four centuries later, uh, things had not changed terribly much. Uh, you know, my father's uh, artificial leg could bend at the knee, um, but that was it. He had, to, uh, he had to manipulate a lever on the side of the leg uh, in order to bend it. Uh, otherwise, it was, it was stiff and he walked with a cane. Uh, and but then when he sat down, he could do that. But that was that, that was as much as he could do. Um, whereas now, of course, uh, you know, if, if if my father were around now, he would he would walk without a cane. He would have a uh, a limb that uh, fully fully well, much much more uh, had had many more articulations and so on, and was much more in tune with his body, if you like. Um, so those things have have uh, changed exponentially just in the space of. Uh, 75 years, um, uh, whereas they didn't change at all for four centuries before that much. So uh, I, I was very struck by that. But in the same framework, of course, as you suggest, uh, our uh, prosthetic life has just gone in all directions, right? Um, with things like the computers that we're looking at now, the phones that we never leave alone, uh, which I'm always uh, yelling at my daughter to put down, <laughs> and she won't. <laughs> she doesn't. And uh, and um, she, whoops. I'm about to speaking of speaking of which, I'm about to lose power if I don't plug in now. <laughs> um. So, so that's, you know, it's just, it's just a whole exponentially different uh, set of prostheses that we are negotiating with. Um, so I don't know to what extent uh, my musings are adequate to that. And of course, other people have picked up and talked about the question in, in, in productive ways and much more, much more. Uh, coherent ways and so on. But I think that the, the, the basic principle is still the same. The basic principle, the idea that life is prosthetic, every, that, 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 that everything the human does is a prosthetization, um, that that principle has not changed, uh, even though, once again, uh, the, the, the divisions between prostheses that are external to the body and prostheses that are internal. When, you know, when I was writing this, people had, uh, uh, you know, pacemakers and so on in their, in their bodies. But now, uh, but now that has developed uh, those sorts of uh, artificial, interior artificial uh, 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 machines uh, have developed uh, greatly, not to mention, of course, the whole concept of bioengineering. Um, and, and, and the fact of, uh, I heard the other day that, uh, scientists had brought a mouse, uh, through six months of embryonic, uh, development inside an artificial womb. Um, so the idea that, 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 that soon we might, uh, produce life artificially, as it were, in, in a, in a whole different way, not to mention cloning and so on and so forth. Those those are things that uh, that that call for a different type of reflection than uh, than I was attempting in my book, but nevertheless, uh, I think uh, still are relevant within the same framework that I was trying to think about.
Yeah, I I was reading something the other day and I I think I mean I don't think this was new, but it was about the bioengineering of plants and I I think it it matched and I, it articulated well with what I was reading about this and I had a lot I was I wanted to talk about it, but none of my friends knew much about bioengineering of plants. Um but I think something that you bring up is like we're living in this world when you you know you just mentioned like the artificial womb or I think we're really into the idea of you know artificial intelligence or um, like robots that can pass as humans or whatever um, like the movie Ex Machina um, if you've seen that or Westworld it's it's very in the in the in vogue right now um, and something that. I think that your book is putting forward um, is maybe like the the difference between natural and artificial or organic and artificial or non-organic is not as strict as we want it to be. Um, and that's, that's a, a fear. Um, there's an anxiety that we have to produce that binary, but it, it, it's, it doesn't hold up against itself. And I think of that, especially in relation to artificial limbs in the sense that, you know, now you can get, I have a friend with um, an artificial limb and the idea is like, you would never be able to tell. Um, and I think what that does is make us, there's an anxiety, it produces an anxiety over being able to tell. Like she's mentioned that because it's it looks so real, she's worried about if anybody will ever notice it's real rather than if it if you just said it was not real or artificial in the in the first place. So I'm, I think that's something that your book articulates that this divide is an anxious one um, and that we have to think about it in a different way. And I think that's maybe the deconstruction that you're bringing in the Derrida um, legacy. Um, we just had a, a fleeting thought. Um, oh, okay. Here's my, here's the other question that I wanted to ask. So this book is part of the post-humanity series. Um, and I, I'm wondering how do you see it working within the post-humanities? I mean, you, you, the post-human idea. Um, I guess that's what I was getting at, the whole robots and all of these AI and, you know, animals. How is this working towards breaking down this illusion of the human? Right. <laughs> well, the... Um, I, th I think the book... Uh, makes the, uh, I hope it does anyway, um, makes the question of the post-human a moot question, if you like, um, by saying that there was never any real simple human. Uh, so, um, prosthesis tried to suggest that uh, one all the ethical questions that get raised about uh, how much the human body should be interfered with, right? Uh, that go from uh, questions of uh, whether we should replace limbs. Uh, right now there's a debate among disabled people about, about whether they should remain, as it were, disabled uh, without, without prosthesis or not. Um, all the way to uh, bioengineering and so on, that those questions are uh, questions of the human that make a decision about pre-human, human, post-human post uh, uh, moot. Um, that that we, we were never human. Um, the extent to which the, the discussion that I uh, tried to have can intervene into uh, you know the landscape of the post-human as it's developed in in academic studies uh, over the last twenty years or so. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a much more complicated question, and uh, you know, I wouldn't pretend to uh, be able to think through all of that or or to suggest that prosthesis uh, uh, you know had had all that in mind. It certainly did not, um, but it was. I would I, I would come back to the idea that it had raised the basic question that remains, right? Where is the human? What constitutes the human? How do we define uh, how much human we want to retain? Um, 
where, where will we come to an agreement about that? Uh, and, and that will always turn around, I think, this conception we have of a human body that is a self-constituted entity. Um, maybe we won't have that conception anymore in, uh, in 100 years. I don't know. Um, but the point at which we are now, and even within the framework of what we now call the post-human, I think we are still within the framework of that question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't like the phrase ahead of its time. I think something is always, you know, it comes out of its time. But in, in a way, this, really, this book really 25 years ago, and it's, and it's small edits up until now, I think really predicted, or maybe not predicted, they, it was prescient. It, it, there was this knowledge of what was coming without maybe making a prediction. And I think of this especially now in relation to um, being in a pandemic and... I mean, we're I'm we're so connected to technology now. I, I'm constantly on Zoom. We're on not Zoom, but something like Zoom, um, or even the technology of a mask that I'm I'm constantly wearing. Um, that is, on the one hand, I like if I am in public or even when I'm watching a movie made way before the pandemic, I, I get nervous when I see people without a mask. Um, so there's there's something of the technological um, in a broad term of something that's created or um, brought into existence um, in Heideggerian definition, maybe um, of something that's attached to the human and articulated with the human. And I think now we're going to have to deal with a different kind of anxiety of like, what happens if the masks come down? Will they ever come down? Or what happens when I don't talk to people on Zoom? So I think this, these questions for right now are already there's a germ of them within the original text. Um, well, thank you for saying so. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'd like to think that was the case. Uh, I like very much the example of the, of the mask that you just referred to, and, and, and it's the other side of it, which is the virus, right? Mm -hmm. The virus is this thing with hooks on, uh, on it. it. It's developed these hooks so it can uh, latch on to uh, our cells, um, and that's taking place inside the body, as it were, uh, and, and naturally, right? The virus, much as we dislike it, is natural. Um, and then to counter it, we have this uh, artificial prosthetic mask that we, uh, that we, that we have to wear mm -hmm. on the outside. So once again, yeah. Yeah, or even, I don't want to make it too in the age of COVID, but like all of the medical, I guess it's there's a real medical um, question of prosthesis that you you draw out um, and I think that anecdote at the beginning that it, it was put into you know the medical section um, is very obvious when I think about it now um, like I'm, I'm thinking of like intubation um, of patients with COVID um, how that that becomes part of their body but in a way it was always the body was already open to that addition um, so we have one final question which is um what are you thinking about now? Are you still thinking about this? Um, what is, what's on your mind? Well, I, I guess I can't stop thinking about it in a sense. Um, much as, <clears throat> uh, I don't know whether I'd like to, but um, I'm, I'm glad to have thought about it. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I was able to think about it in different ways um, over the last 25 years or so, uh, all the way from through the books uh, that you mentioned earlier, plus a, a more recent book that came out in 2019 about capital punishment, about the death penalty. And mm -hmm. how there you had a case of, of, of the prosthetic um, being something lethal designed to end life. Um, so the question continued through that. Uh, I mean, I, I, I have a project that seems very different um, that I hope to be able to work on next, but, it's never going to get away with from, from the sorts of questions that, uh, that are raised here. I mean, I'll tell you that the project is, uh, is involved what happens when you walk into the Rothko Chapel in Houston uh, and you, you sit down in that particular space um, and you think, if you think, or you meditate, if you meditate, or you empty your mind, if you empty your mind, and so on. Um, to what extent are you, are you, thanks to that artificial space, 
that, that, that octog octagonal chapel with those particular uh, dark canvases of Rothko's on them. Um, how is it that you somehow try to enter into a, a more, much more natural relation with yourself, if you like? Um, so it's, it's thinking about the reverse process in a way, um, starting from artificiality, going back to what am I in my most natural uh, in this space? So, yeah, I don't, I don't think the idea will go away. I um, is uh, for the for the time I keep writing, um, and. Uh, it, it, it won't be the questions won't be posed in the same way that I think have been have been uh, uh, you know repeatedly posed uh, over the last uh, twenty five years, but uh, it's still a good idea. <laughs> I think so. What are you thinking about? Well, I'm looking out. I look forward to getting that idea in some way, um, and also in the meantime, I, this is off-topic-ish, but um, I'm excited to read Clang. I just, I actually just got that in the mail, your um, translation along with Jeffrey Bennington of Derrida's Glass. Um, yeah. I, I'm very, I'm very excited to read it. That, that text is so interesting um, and I'm excited to see what you did with it. Um, but thank you for coming onto the show today. Um, I think we had a great conversation. Um, once again, that was um, David Wills. Thank you for coming, David. Thank you for having me once again. Um, Enjoy it. Um, yeah, it was great. And we were talking about your book, Prosthesis, um, out now. Well, it was already out. The 25th anniversary edition, which is out now through University of Minnesota Press. Um, until next time, thank you for listening to the New Books and Literary Studies channel of the New Books Network. Um, I'm your host, Britt Edelin, um, and I'll see you, see you later. <laughs>